and welcome to another episode of Behind the Mic, a events podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists and musicians across the UK and beyond, discussing their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. My special guests for this episode are Josh and Charlie from North East London band See You At Home. I'll state for the record, I've known their other band member, Arthur, since we were kids, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people from our area tuning into this pod, so expect some nostalgia trips along the way. Anxiety, overthinking, the power of music, friendship and more are all on the menu. This is how our conversation went. Josh, Charlie, welcome to Behind the Mic, guys. Thanks so much for coming on. First off, how are you both and how are you coping with this general situation we find ourselves in? We are recording at time of second lockdown. Josh, do you want to go first? Well, thank you for having us as well. It's it's an honour to be on the podcast and everything. It's been okay. It's been a bit, bit of a strange time. I've been working from home since like March, which is odd. It's like a it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like I, I really like it but it's also simultaneously very strange. Now I'm working in my shed, but at the start I was in my room. So I was like waking up in my bed, moving a meter to my desk, working for like, you know, seven, eight hours, finishing work, moving a meter back to my bed, playing games. And it was just, (laughs) it was a very weird vibe, but now I'm, you know, I'm in my shed. I've got like a separate workspace. So that's, that's good. So I think it's, it's fairly okay. And how's it been for you, Charlie? I've actually been quite lucky, I think, because I, I worked from home for a few weeks at the start of the second lo- lockdown, and then I was furloughed for a couple of months, really, which was obviously great at the start when everybody was kind of, oh, great, you know, and I get paid for this, and I get to kind of sit and do nothing. And, I, you know, in your head, you think it's going to be something that it isn't. And yeah, after by the time the second month hit, yeah, as you say, you couldn't leave your house. I was kind of stuck in my bedroom. I was trying to do personal projects to keep myself sane and music and things like that. But yeah, and then I was back to work in the office. I work in Rumford, so it's not too bad. It's not in the city and I drive, so I got quite I'm quite lucky with all of that. But yeah, it's just been a really for me personally, it's not really been that bad in comparison to a couple of my friends have had it have had it quite bad. But no, it's not been not been terrible at all. Perfect. We've got that out of the way. Shall we just crack on? Let's start the pod with the see you at home journey or see ya as we'll abbreviate it too. So it stops me from saying it every single time, which takes a bit few seconds. Before we do that, Josh, why don't you start by telling the listeners about how you got into music, your favourite records or music idols growing up and what impact did they have on you? It's been a very weird journey musically for me. I actually, when I was very young, I didn't care for music that much. I actually thought it was sort of pointless when I was super young. I didn't really understand why people were so into music, which is very different to how I am now. And I think as I grew up and like became a teenager and stuff, I realized how much of an impact it could have on people. And then I think in terms of favorite music and stuff, when I was growing up, Block Party was like the first band <laughs> I properly got into. Helicopter in Guitar Hero 3. That was like the best song. I was obsessed with that. I was a big fan of, uh, of Weekend in the City as well. That was amazing. It was like a really nice blend of electronic and like alt rock kind of stuff and then also some fantastic sad vibes in there as well which i'm a big fan of i never got to see them live though i I wish i had before they had the um because they've changed now haven't they they've got like a different lineup but they were also the first band that kind of got me into wanting to play music as well so that i was like banquet 
there was a little lick in the middle of banquet and it was like do 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 it's so good and i was like i want to be able to play that and yeah that got me into music and then more recently a similar vibe so big fan of lad dispute julian baker phoebe bridges foxing bon eva big fan of them so i guess those all the various people within those bands are kind of my music idols it's interesting that we all probably have the same upbringing of the in the mid noughties indie scene i don't like to call it landfill indie but for me, my first ever gig was The Pigeon Detective, supported by Cage Elephant at Brixton Academy in 2009. And I think we probably all grew up on bands like Claxons. Every band with a K, Claxons, Kooks, Killers, Kings of Leon, Hard Fi, Pigeon Detectives, Ting Tings, Little Comets, all those sorts of bands. So it, it sounds like we, we all had a pretty similar upbringing to our first genre of music. Charlie, how did your music journey start? I should just say as well, I definitely agree with you on the whole in-betweeners slash skins era of all of us kind of growing up off that same music. Because, yeah, basically it's similar age, similar kind of taste, which shaped my kind of upbringing quite a lot. So my dad is a musician. He, he was in a band at school and actually dropped out of sixth form to go and tour in Europe. So I've always been around music. He had a, a studio at home whilst I was growing up. So I've always been kind of equally exposed to the production or writing side of music as I had been just listening to it. Um, he was quite... It could have gone one or two ways, really, because he kind of gently nudged me into music that he thought I should like, I guess, is the way that I put it. Things like Foo Fighters, etc., traditional rock or punk or something like that, that was the young, cool music for him. But he was also quite open to me finding my own taste in music, and he thought it was quite important that I would go off and find something that I like, even if it's not necessarily what he liked. And so I kind of leaned through high school into more electronic kind of music and big beat stuff like Prodigy and, and bands like that. And so he was perfectly happy for me to kind of go off and, and, and find songs in that kind of genre and even to the point where he would discover stuff and he would show it to me. So it was quite nice to have that kind of structure and that kind of support when it came to actually finding new artists. But yeah, to echo Josh's sentiment as well about when we all kind of met in the middle in high school and all these current bands yeah Claxons, hard fire specifically my dad was a big fan of hard fire as well which was quite nice for me because the bonding experience and stuff like that but yeah yeah that was kind of my musical journey up to, to high school when i started discovering kind of the more production side of it for myself and what age were you both when you picked up an instrument and what impact did that have on your mental health? So, Josh, why don't you go first and then you, Charlie, as I understand you're a bit of a music whiz. So you'll have more to tell us, I'm sure. I think I was about 13 when I picked up an instrument, so the guitar. But I actually had a, a, a dilemma of whether I was going to go for drums or guitar when I was young. And it was all from Block Party. So the, the drummer in Block, I think it was Matt, the, the original drummer in Block Party, and he was amazing. And Arthur had already started to learn guitar at the time so I was like oh do I learn the guitar because I think in our head we always wanted to have like a band and sort of like jam together and I was like oh if I go for guitar we'd have two guitars and we're not we don't have drums so maybe I should go for drums but then I just decided to go for guitar which is good and I guess it's good that then we were able to find Charlie <laughs> and fill that fill that role <laughs> And for you, Charlie, what was it like when you first picked up your instrument or a DJ deck, I should say? It's funny because I started off, I think I picked up the guitar seriously as in, because obviously growing up around instruments, it was always something that I played around with when I was very young and, you know, just hitting cymbals and stuff as a kid or, or what have you. But in terms of seriously picking up the guitar and trying to learn chords and things, I think I was around 13 or 14. And that was kind of when I 
started learning a bit more about the music theory of it. And obviously my dad was elated because this was like the moment where I was going to shoot to stardom or whatever in, in his mind. But yeah, I got, I think it was Christmas 2013. I actually got a drum pad controller for Christmas because obviously I was leaning towards more electronic stuff. I'm a big hip hop fan, big rap fan. And I think that was one area that my, maybe my parents didn't fully understand. It was the one genre that my dad really didn't have any either input or interest in. And so I was always the kid, you know, tapping out on the desks at school with pens and stuff like that. I was always quite, you know, rhythm based, if you like. So I think that was a natural fit for me. And from then on, I liked discovering during school people like Jay Diller and other hip hop producers who used kind of similar gear to the things that I was interested in, other things that I was using. It kind of opened my eyes to how samples can be more of just, as my dad would probably put it, ripping off someone else's song. It was definitely more of a you could almost play a sample like an instrument with the right kit. So it was definitely more of a, an instrumental thing rather than just, you know, clicking a mouse to draw a pattern in or something like that. So I think that was really when I shifted into more of a, so I, I would still consider it an instrument if you like, but it was definitely more of a, in terms of production, it was more of a halfway house between the two. Let's talk about Sia in a bit more detail now. So as I understand it, Josh, it was yours and your fellow bandmate who's not on the pod Arthur's creation. Firstly, where did the name come from? That's a good question. So I can't actually quite remember them specifically remember where I heard it. But it was, it was like a phrase from like a film or a TV show or something. It said quite a lot during films and TV, but there was always this like inherent comfort to the phrase. Saying see you at home, it, it's something that someone who lives with you would say. And you know, that person for the most part is gonna be like a friend a roommate, a family member, a significant other or whatever. I just thought it was really nice and you would never hear that phrase in a manner that wasn't comforting. And there's like consistency to it too, right? So, you, you know, at the end of the day, both people that are saying it to each other, they're going to go away, experience their days, whether they're, you know, good or bad, but they have that like anchor of each other and returning home and seeing each other at home. And it was just a really nice, comforting, warm and wholesome phrase. So I was like, oh, I think that would work well as for a band name given as well that a lot of our stuff's kind of rooted in nostalgia and emotion and stuff given that you and arthur have known each other since kids you know four or five years old uh, we'll talk about it a bit later but one of the cover artwork i think for one of your eps is you as kids is that where the name came from as well because you were using that phrase whether you were kind of going to each other's houses to like play playstation or play football and stuff that's a really good point. It didn't, but it definitely could be because we did always see each other when we were kids, like ever since we were, because I've known Arthur since we were like three years old, um, we just would always be each other's houses, like we lived down the road from each other. And I think naturally it does fit into that quite well, actually. So I might add that to the list of <laughs> reasons of why our band is called See You At Home. <laughs> and for the listeners who haven't heard of you, how would you describe your sound? So... It's an interesting blend. It's like dream pop with like some electronic elements and like emo as well. I, I saw a comment like a few months back and someone called us dreamo music, which I just loved. It was like dreamy emo music. <laughs> so I, I think, yeah, that's what I usually say whenever people ask. And Charlie, when did you join the band and what made you decide to come on board? So I joined the band roughly about three years ago. I met Josh during high school. There was a mutual friend who had a Minecraft server, actually, that we all used to play on. And I kind of met Josh through that. And then obviously through the mutual friends we had through that, we ended up meeting in real life. And we discovered that we had quite similar music tastes. There was a pretty big overlap there. So naturally that led to us eventually getting together and, and jamming. And I was aware of See You at Home because it, it led on from another band that a couple of my friends were also in. But there was just a lot of 
ideas that we both kind of had that I thought would work well. I thought it would be worth me coming just even as just a jam session, just to sit down and see how we could, uh, how we could implement me and what I do into the band. And I think the initial idea for me joining was just initially to play some of the elements of the existing See You At Home tracks that would have been difficult to translate to live things like bass lines and because we didn't have a drummer, obviously, and there was a lot of synth layers in the tune. So it was more of a way of me being able to free that up from just being production and bringing it onto a laptop and so we could play live with it. And obviously when you jam with people after a certain point, you end up kind of improvising or just jamming for something new. And I think we all kind of did our own thing, but it clicked so well that it, we all felt that it would work well. And then that obviously led on to us kind of writing stuff as a three piece. And then, yeah, on from there. You mentioned your love of hip hop and those influences previously, Charlie. Can you talk about how you wove them into See You at Home and the music you put out since you joined? Yeah, it's definitely been, and I'm, I'm sure Josh will probably have some to say about this as well, but it's definitely given it a bit more of a electronic slash hip hop kind of feel and I think the way that I've brought that in there's a lot of elements of hip hop when you listen to especially modern rap it's almost in between both of our music tastes there's a lot of rap that's quite synth heavy it's quite sad there's a lot of reverb lyrically it it talks about quite depressing themes if you like but there are still there's a loud 808 bass in there there's a lot of drum like hi-hat rolls and things like that so it's kind of a almost a direct mix of traditional hip-hop production, but all of the, the melodies are reverb guitars and it's a bit surfy. And I think we both liked similar music like that, like listening to that music anyway. So I think we both were happy for it to kind of naturally and organically go in that direction. And as an artist in your own right previously and to now, Charlie, I've got to ask this question. How often do you get people ask you about your namesake, the R&B legend, Charlie Wilson? Do you get tempted to chuck in a few swoons and a few ooey babies here and there? Uncle Charlie, yeah. Well, I mean, my, given given my dad has been a musician basically his entire life, I feel like it must have been intentional on some level. There must have been some shared knowledge there. Yeah, so during school, there was definitely, I mean, kids would pick on you for anything, but that definitely didn't help me sharing the same name. And the movie, just as an aside as well, the movie Charlie Wilson's War that came out whilst I was in high school, that was quite fun as well. There's a few people taking photographs of the sign outside the Odeon Cinema. Oh, this is you, you got a movie out. Uh, so yeah, that was, yeah, it's an interesting name to have if you're trying to put your music out on the internet. Let me just say that. <laughs> and Josh, what do you think Charlie brings to the band that perhaps might have been missing before, not just musically, but personality as well? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think I think our sound, kind of echoing what Charlie said, our sound is very different with Charlie on board. And like Arthur and I have similar music tastes kind of like that kind of alt rock kind of vibe traditional guitar and then charlie and i have similar music tastes there's almost venn diagram of like all three of us kind of joining together and having this nice kind of synergy with each other and i think that's really good to have for like the writing side as well and the jamming and everything it's been it's been interesting to blend all those genres together that we like in kind of new and interesting ways production wise as well charlie is fantastic in terms of production i am very amateur (laughs) and it's nice to share that load because that whole workflow is just super long it's you'll get like 80 percent of the way and it's like fun to do up until 80 percent, and then the last 20 percent just takes forever because like it's like oh i'm editing vocals for like a week (laughs) so it's nice to to have a personality wise you know charlie during live stuff like is incredible and during the birds gig that i'm sure we'll, we'll speak about later like the whole vibe of that and working the crowd and everything and i think all three of us work together 
and get on really well as well. So um, I think that helps for, for the band. You put out three bodies of work so far. Everything's okay. The future's here and it's terrible and be happy. Let's talk everything's okay first. So you released this in 2015, which feels like an absolute lifetime ago. How did this come about? How do you reflect on this piece of work looking back? And are you as proud of it now as you were back then as your debut record? Yeah, it's crazy that it's 2015 that we released Everything's Okay. I actually, Charlie and I spoke a bit yesterday and I had forgotten it was 2015, which is kind of bad to say on a podcast about our band. <laughs> but it's been so long since we released anything. But I think that's a side point. We will be we will be fixing that soon. But I think in terms of how Everything's Okay came about, during uni, I always had said to myself that I wanted to do music when, when I left. So I kind of had it as this kind of goal and like passion project that kind of powered me through uni. And I was, I was writing lyrics and stuff during breaks and lectures. And, and once I graduated, I, I took six months out and I was like, I'm going to spend some time, record some music and then see kind of where it gets to. And I also like recorded, wrote 50% of the second one during that time as well. It is weird looking back. I'm proud of them now and I really like them, but only if I've not heard them in a while. So like if I listen to our stuff again now and if I listen to it a lot I'll start to hear like mistakes I made during production and like that perfectionist part of my brain is like oh there's like an extra vocal sound that you've got there why didn't you edit that out Josh <laughs> it's weird but it is if I listen to them once I really like them and it's like oh man like I can't believe that was how we started and the evolution as well you know in terms of production how our songwriting changed and stuff and I guess we'll get, we'll get to this later but like my fear of releasing stuff as well it was nice that Looking back, I'm proud I managed to get over that. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm still proud of them. Your second EP sounds like a weird prophetic declaration of what the world is in right now, despite its name and being released in 2016. How did you evolve your sound from your first EP and what significance does it have for you now? Yeah, so I, I guess on the crystal ball kind of like pathetic point, like the state of the world back then was really bad. It's so much worse now. So it's lyrically the themes are almost nothing to do with that in in that EP though. It's you know it's just standard existential stuff like the usual see you at home bread and butter. Um, there's like a song in there from Arthur and emotions and nostalgia. The usual. Yeah, in, in terms of evolution of the sound, like I, I think we're really lucky during EP one to get quite a few people listening to it and commenting on it and there was one review that we I can't remember who what there was like a blog had reviewed our EP as well and even though we, we got that even though I didn't market it at all because I was like kind of worried about it um, but there was one review that mentioned like a, a bit of a weakness in our songwriting in our initial songwriting and I was like oh I wanted to in my head I, like, I want to address that in following EPs so I kind of worked on that to try and evolve that part of it but I think in terms of the three EPs though they were all kind of very close to one another anyway. When I've spoken to Charlie and Arthur about this, we kind of see them as this like nostalgia saga and they all kind of exist like one, two and three, are almost just like an album split up into three bits that we released kind of over the course of three years. But I think, yeah, production wise, we evolved songwriting. We took those points from comments and stuff. And but generally the themes and, and vibes kind of were retained over the three albums or three EPs even. But the new stuff is very different and I'm sure we'll we'll speak about that later. <laughs> Be Happy was your last body of work, which you put out in 2017, which has an adorable picture of you and Arthur for the cover art, Josh. I want to break down this into two parts because the first one I want to ask about is the nostalgia artwork being intentional and does it reflect the tracks contained within it? And also, was the title of the EP 
a message to yourself or was it reflecting perhaps a stigma that you had faced around the whole people telling you be happy or why don't you just cheer up when you came to mental health difficulties basically that's a very very good question so i guess on on the the actual picture itself so for all of the eps they all had this kind of like old photo vibe and i was trying to find that for, for ep3 and i couldn't find anything in my massive back catalog of old photos from the 90s i asked arthur and i wanted something like blue because we've got like this color palette for all three we've got like a solid green for the first one solid like pink and then i wanted blue because it was like to complete the saga the trilogy and arthur sent that picture and it was just like too but like both of us are even wearing blue in the picture it's literally it was too good to not use and and, and i like that it was us as well because the first two the first one had like nothing in the back. I think it's like a greenhouse or something with, there's a kettle and that's it. The second one, there's a fireplace, but there's nothing kind of, there's no human element to it. So it was nice to round off the trilogy with me and Arthur being on the album. And, and it does tie into nostalgia. Nostalgia is a common theme in all of our songs. And I think having us on it was really nice. And Be Happy lyrically was, I think, supposed to be this rounding off of the first three EPs. So it's supposed to almost be a kind of coming to terms with the feelings of like stress and anxiety in the first two and getting to that point of being happy. And in terms of nostalgia as well, like I think I felt that my very early youth was kind of a punctuated moment when I felt carefree. So I wanted to return to that and rounding that off and having the picture of both of us on it was a nice kind of cyclical send off, I guess. You spoke to me off air, Josh, about how you find it difficult speaking about your mental health at times and how your feelings and music are this really powerful vehicle to help you articulate that. Just expand on that a bit more, if you could, for the listeners. Ever since I was young, I was quite like walled off. I, I would find it difficult and I, it would be very rare for me to speak to others about my emotions and, and mental health and stuff. And I, I'd speak to like Arthur about things and, you know, family, but it was rare. And there was still an element of myself that I would keep bottled up. And before I started writing music, I think listening to music that resonated me was one of the ways of letting that out and experiencing those emotions in, in a kind of more healthy sense. But at some point that became like not quite enough and I needed more. So that was when I kind of during uni, because uni was an, an intense period of my life, I started writing lyrics and I found it quite cathartic. And it helped a lot with uni stress. Having that like goal and dream to look forward to as well was quite good. So I have thought about this quite a bit and I think it's almost like shrouding your emotions while still letting out your emotions by writing about them like I've hidden all of these feelings and like metaphors and stuff and I know what they are Charlie and Arthur kind of know what they are but no one else sort of does like they can get the gist of them because we don't have like very deep deep lyric like metaphors or anything but I'm sneakily getting the benefit of talking about my emotions while also not talking about my emotions and the way that I usually write as well I've got this giant notepad that is I need to actually do some calculations on how many words are in this notepad because it's just full but I've just whenever I have a thought like something that you know I'm worried about or something I'll jot it down in this notepad and then all of those little sentences get stitched together to create a song that feels more organic and I guess natural because it's an actual thought that I've had in that way it's also me expressing myself from those thoughts and it's kind of cathartic and healing at the same time. Let's talk about the stage process now and what that feeling is like for you both. Talk me through your mental processes before, during and after your performance. Charlie, let's start with you first. Yeah, well, I definitely still feel anxiety about performing because barring school performances, I think when I was much younger, I'd only really started playing 
live shows, if you like, in the last couple of years, even though I've been into producing music and listening to music, playing music my whole life. It's only really been the last couple of years that I've started performing. So I definitely say I'm still new to it. And I think for my own sets, because I do a few solo things as well, aside from Zoom at Home, but because it's all on a controller and it's all electronic, there's more of a pre-production element to it. So there's a bit more of a safety net. Maybe it's just mental, but there is a bit more of a safety net of, okay, I've produced this whole set. I know roughly where I'm going to take it. I know what buttons to press. I know when to press them. You kind of, you can drill that into yourself. So it's as much as I had confidence in doing that it was a bit outside of my comfort zone playing with see you at home initially because it's a bit more of a traditional band setup it's not exactly like i'm just playing on decks in a club or something like that it's actually there are set songs and there's things like stage banter and there's other things that you wouldn't get otherwise so i've played two shows with them so far but it's actually been quite nice and i've found it once i've got over the initial stage fright of it I find it's actually more enjoyable in a more traditional band setting. And yeah, after the first or second song, I kind of relax into it. And then it's gone in a flash and I kind of want to do it all again. <laughs> and Josh, what is it like for you? Do you have any anxieties or nerves before you get on stage? And what is that feeling like, more importantly, when you're performing, playing and singing in that moment? I have tons of anxieties before I get on stage. There's a kind of funny story here of like, when I even first started recording music, I couldn't even show people the music like the recordings of me because I was so worried about it and I hated singing live and I hated people hearing me sing live or recorded the only reason I managed to do that was because of Arthur and showing the song to Arthur and also to my my uni maths gang so shout out to shout out to uni maths gang (laughs) I used to show them the songs I'd amp myself up by showing them and hiding the songs amongst shuffle so I'd listen to (laughs) I'd be like oh do you want to check out this like playlist I came up with (laughs) And it'd be normal songs. And then it'd be a See You At Home song in the middle. And I wouldn't tell them. And it would normalize me showing the songs to them and me singing. And then eventually I, I like got the courage to say like, oh yeah, that was me. And they're really supportive of it. And then that kind of made me believe in myself. So that helped a lot. But in terms of like the gig, one to two weeks before, I'll be like super anxious. Any free time I have will be spent trying to rehearse everything. I'll like annoy Charlie and ask me like, hey guys, do you want to do like rehearsals on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday? <laughs> maybe even Saturday (laughs) and they usually you know they bring me back down to earth and it's like you know it's like oh you know it'll be fine like we don't need to do as much and once we do have the rehearsals they're you know very condensed and helpful for that but yeah well I've rehearsed everything even like the banter (laughs) the amount of time I spend thinking on stage banter it's kind of silly if I perfect the songs then there's less to worry about so I'll think about all of that during work and stuff I'll be like running through the lyrics in my head to make sure I don't forget them But when the actual gig comes around, it's like fantastic. I'm surprised sometimes at how comfortable I do get on stage. I guess it's that whole fight or flight thing. And I I definitely get to the fight bit. It feels really good. It's, It's scary, but it's like such an adrenaline rush. And at the end, when people are clapping and talking to you afterwards and like, oh, you know, this really good gig. It's just like. It's such a nice, wholesome feeling. I do really love it. It's weird as well, because I'm quite an introverted person and like I kind of stay in my room all the time. So it's odd that I am comfortable on stage, but it's it's such a nice feeling. It's it's like life affirming playing gigs with with the guys. Do you think it's brought you out your shell more? Definitely. It's I I think, yeah, before this kind of goes on to an interesting point, because I think Arthur was also one of the people that got me out of my shell originally, because I used to be even more closed off. And when I was younger, I didn't like going out much and I'd be even more in my room. And he was like, no, like come out to meet a few of my friends and chat. And 
he like pushed me to do the gig stuff as well because he was always really into the live element of it before like when we were releasing ep one two and three we didn't play any gigs like it was only after be happy came out that we started to explore that area with with charlie and so on it's definitely brought me out of my shell i'm glad that it has because it's helped in other areas of my life as well like just having that confidence to be on stage and be in that kind of environment is is helpful it helps in literally everything like even like job and social situations so definitely i know he's listening so big shout out to arthur on the pod when you get to, when you get to this part mate big shout out to arthur <laughs> yeah I saw you perform at the Birds in Leytonstone, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. That was the first time I saw you guys perform. There was such a great energy between you all whilst you were performing. And you clearly all love your own music, the ones you're playing as well. And you could you could tell whilst you were performing. Is that important for you all? Yeah, I definitely think that's important. I mean, we're all great friends. And as I mentioned before, we all are into the type of music that we make anyway outside of the band. So it's all very organic. I think all the way from the writing stage up to performing, I think there's just a great organic chemistry between all of us. And I think that definitely, as you say, you see it almost live when we perform. And I'm sure Josh would echo that. Yeah, no, de- I d- definitely. It's very important for me and I think all of us. It's. I was thinking about this the other day. I think even if we weren't releasing music as See You At Home, we'd still be playing live. It would still be so fun. And just to like go and rehearse and jam is just It's very wholesome and, and enjoyable. And I think we'd still be doing it even if we weren't See You At Home. Managing the band whilst you all have full-time jobs can't be easy. And breaking down these myths of, you know, the superstar DJ or the superstar artist is something we do a lot on Vent and the podcast. How do you manage it and what are the realities of this that people might not see and the impact it has on your mental health? Charlie, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I mean, we all work office jobs, so it's definitely, I think, difficult for us to keep that energy up after work to be productive, but just in life in general, but especially when it comes to music, because I think music is quite passionate. It's quite intense. It's a bit of a labor of love. So I think it's difficult to keep that energy after doing a whole day. And especially if, even on a good day, it can sometimes be difficult, let alone if you've had a, like a struggle. But yeah, pre-COVID, we experimented with, me and Josh experimented with doing some production over Discord. So we would both have Logic open and we would be jumping a video chat and send little loops back and forth and kind of see if we could make a tune that way. And it kind of works so well that we try to make it a bit of a regular occurrence. And I I think definitely having a remote workflow already organized by the time that the quarantine hit, I think was almost a bit, it was eerie how that kind of happened. It definitely helped us. Aside from the project, it helped us stay sane as well, I think, because there's it definitely having that routine and that structure of being able to write music and rehearse and things like that. And I sometimes feel burnt out at work and come home and I don't want to do anything. But usually if I begrudgingly, at least initially begrudgingly, if I start a project or I start working on something, I'll push past that kind of anxiety about not wanting to do anything. And then it kind of kicks in because working on music does genuinely lift my spirits. I just sometimes have to trick myself, if you like, into (laughs) into working on anything. And Josh, what is it like for you and what are those realities that people might not see or friends might not see? I do struggle with that and kind of echoing what Charlie said, like having a full-time job is stressful and it's exhausting. And even if I have the best interests at heart of like when I'm finished with my day at work, it's like I'm going to do music. Sometimes I'm so knackered that I'll just fall into my bed and play video games or whatever, which is kind of a bad habit that I'm trying to get out of. But yeah, even on those days that aren't busy, it's still tiring. But in terms of like the effect that it has on my mental health, I think it's almost the opposite way around. I think if I do force myself to do the music, 
and working on songs and everything after work, it does help me, even if I am exhausted, as Charlie was saying, like breaking past that first barrier almost to work on it is really helpful. Like it is energizing to go and work on music after work. It's just the getting past that and that horrible, like initial tiredness is the, is the big thing. And it's a bit different now because I guess as well, all three of us have, you know, been in our, in our fields a bit longer. So we're kind of taking on more responsibility and it's like busier at work. So that does kind of factor in as well. But once you're past that wall, it's nice to end the day with like a bit of music production and, and stuff. Let's talk upcoming projects now. I understand you've got a couple of new singles on the way, which by the time this is out might already be out. Who knows? Are there any event exclusives that you can give us, Josh? Oh, so there are indeed. So I had a chat to Charlie about this yesterday because we previously were actually working on an album, but that has been paused. <laughs> so sorry to, to start really exciting news and then to bring it back. But we, so we wrote an album over the last kind of two to three years between Be Happy and Now when Charlie joined, but it's kind of, it's going to sound really surprising given our other EPs, but the themes of it were actually almost kind of hopeful. And it was quite bright sounding in places as well. And as Charlie was saying earlier, like blending that initial like hip hop vibe and more of the electronic stuff in there. I think we're all in a bit of a different place now. So releasing it now, given how I usually write and how I like to have all those different feelings from my notepad put into those songs, it would feel a bit odd to release it now, given the state of everything. We will release it at some point, but I think for now it's probably going to be on the back burner. But there is still going to be some other... We want to release a couple of singles to kind of tide things over. I think the next one's going to be CRT, isn't it, Charlie? Like, I don't know if you want to speak about that because it's... Uh... Yeah, sure. So CRT is a, a song that we kind of started working on once we... Well, as Josh just mentioned, once we kind of come to the realisation that actually the world we're living in is a bit different, if you like, to the place that we were all in when we started writing the album. So we almost went back to how we initially started out. We all just came together. We had a bit of a jam session because we'd been working on the mixing slash polishing stage of this album for so long at this point that we hadn't actually created any new songs, really. We hadn't actually written anything. We hadn't really played anything. It was more just polishing what we already had from months prior. So I think it was nice for us to just kind of get back together let's imagine we're going to shelve this album and let's think about what would we write if we were going to write a See You At Home song today in this climate where we all are, what would it sound like? And CRT was kind of a natural progression of all of that. And I think that, as Josh said, that will be a, it's a very, I don't want to use the word accurate because it kind of doesn't really make sense, but it, it's a very fitting song to See You At Home in 2020, if you like. And just finally, boys, doing See You At Home for as long as you have, Josh, and for the time you have, Charlie, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? Josh, do you want to go first? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's made me probably realise how important music is to me, I guess. Playing live stuff and writing and everything, the catharsis of it and also just the experience of being in a band and having that collaboration with everyone and Charlie and Arthur it's so like life affirming and it's definitely I've, re I've realized it's definitely like my passion project and it's something that I would want to continue doing and it's something that I think I get a lot from as a person and for you Charlie yeah it's just highlighted to me I think how important music really is for me because I tend to go through cycles of my interests I'll, I'll be really hyper focused on producing music and then I will not really want to touch anything and I'll get really into playing video games and then that'll bore me and then I'll swap to others. So I kind of operate like that. And I think it's made me realize how 
music is one of the only things that I don't necessarily have to put down. I can ke- always keep it as a, as like a common thread throughout my life. And in that sense, having a routine is quite important for me. So I think being able to actually write stuff and as well as, as kind of meet up with people and do it, because it kind of bridges that gap between, I know, as Josh said before, about kind of being typically introverted, but also enjoying extroverted activities, I guess, from time to time. Music's kind of that middle stepping stone where it is quite solitary. Writing music is quite personal. It's quite insular, but also at the same time, playing music with other people, it's that sense of community and it really kind of brings people together, even just if you're watching it. It's kind of highlighted to me all of the good parts about producing, writing and playing music. It's just reaffirmed how important that is in my life, really. We've talked See You at Home. Let's go behind the mic and talk about your own journeys, guys, in a bit more detail. So, Josh, I'll start with you. So why don't you firstly tell me about your early life, your childhood and teenagers, and whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint? You know, who's the Josh we meet here? Yeah, so, I mean, I was always kind of quite worried as a child, and I think I can remember being, like, properly anxious, I suppose, in in year five. It'd always be about, like, exams or, like, end-of-term tests and stuff. And I think I put a lot of pressure on myself when I was younger because I spend a lot of time as a nine-year-old thinking rather about my future and my career and stuff. You know, it's a normal thing for a nine-year-old to do. And I was quite conscious that I'd need like good grades and stuff for the career paths that I thought about. I I conflated the importance of those tests. And then that kind of made me a kind of overthinking ball of worry. So going back to the year five thing, I I remember I had a bad exam result and my mind kind of started jumping around and I was like, oh, you know, if you don't do well in this test, you won't get, you won't get into a good secondary school and then you won't have good teachers possibly. And then you, you know, you won't get good GCSEs and A-levels and then you won't go to the uni that you want to do and you won't be able to do what you want to do as a job. And then, you know, you'll feel unsatisfied with life. And my mind would like spiral down that thought, which is odd to think that a 10 year old, nine year old would, (laughs) would think about that. And I think that thought process then just kind of latched on to other aspects of my life. So the kind of spiraling and, and worrying about things. And I used to worry a lot about leaving things behind and losing stuff. So I remember very clearly in secondary school, I, I didn't bring a textbook in once. And the teacher was actually fine with it. They were like, oh, you know, just share with the person sitting next to you. But in my head, I was like, no, they're really very disappointed with you. you you're a failure, Josh. <laughs> and I think it affected me so that I'd always... I'd always be checking things like a, a crazy amount. I go like I'd probably check with my parents before going into school like 10 times if I had specific notebooks and like textbooks and stuff. And even though I knew they were there, I'd like hold it up to them and be like, this is my biology textbook, right? And they'd be like, yeah, it is. You, you can stop checking with us now. <laughs> and then when I was on the way to school, I'd also check things more. So like open my bag just in case my bag had magically opened and like I'd lost something. And I'd go through and even though opening my bag was probably going to make it more likely that I'd lose something, but I'd open my bag walking to school and be like, oh, do I have everything? I have everything. And the thought process that I like rationalized in my head was if I checked things regularly, if I did drop a book, then there would be like less time in between when I checked it to when I'd have to backtrack. So it kind of made sense to me. (laughs) And I think all of my like worries when I was younger, uh, they were just kind of almost justifications of things I had worried about. So worrying about an exam result. Oh, I did get a bad exam result. I should think about that more. Oh, I did lose a textbook once or did forget a textbook. I need to think about that. And I think that's kind of just built up and it's formed little 
rituals over my life that I then do to kind of counter those worries. I was speaking to Charlie again about this kind of off air, like all those little worries that are always there. It's kind of like having that constant worried state is better than having a big jump up to a big worry kind of thing. Like if I'm prepared mentally for that, that worried state by being in that kind of moderate worry, it's less scary and it's, it's a bit better. It's almost kind of, I guess it's a, a way to cope with the, the worries and everything. And since you've gone on this journey, what other tools or methods have you used that have helped you manage your anxiety or your overchecking? Are there little affirmations that you use? Are there things that you use that just kind of help you get through the day? What can you tell me here? I think there's, yeah, there's lots of different things. I think I've got lots of like little checks that I guess help and don't help in some ways, because it's almost you're building up a kind of ritual that can kind of harm as well. But I think a big thing for me was probably running running during uni especially because uni was a very intense period of my life but having running as a way of literally running away from my like maths problems and compartmentalizing my head and just having that time to myself to be like you know you've got this maths problem that's due on whatever day you've got this life thing that you're thinking about like that goes in this box and just organizing my thoughts while jogging helped a ton I think that's probably the biggest thing that's helped I was speaking to someone at work the other day who was saying that he he runs without music and without listening to like the radio or a podcast or anything and he was like oh it's such a good way of focusing on yourself and getting into a, like a meditative state and I was like wow that sounds so bizarre because I always run with music um, and I tried it the other day and it was fantastic like <laughs> I would just I was running down a road and I was just completely in my thoughts and by the end of when I'd organized my thoughts I was at the end of the road and I was like oh damn I've like run like for five minutes already, it's, it's really good. But I think, yeah, running, I think has been a massive help and you know, exercise in general has been good for me. And during this journey, what have been some of the more difficult moments that you can pinpoint? And maybe conversely, what have been some of the positive moments where you've had a breakthrough or you've you managed your anxiety really well or had a big achievement? So I think for me, they're almost kind of the same thing. So going back to like uni, I think last year of uni, especially it was this it would have been the most stressful that I would have ever been, I think, in my life, just because of the, the amount of stuff we had on and just like, it was crazy. And I don't know quite what happened with myself, but I, I replaced Josh with another Josh who was the most chilled version of Josh that Josh had ever been. <laughs> and I was nervous, but I kind of managed to, to manage my worries quite well. I think a lot of it comes down to caring so a lot of my worries now are to do with like caring too much about what people think. And I think back then it was kind of the same. But when I was at uni, I I think I got into a point of like not caring. Like I didn't care about anything, which sounds really bad, but in more of the sense of like, there's nothing more I can do. You know, I've done everything that I can do for this exam. There's nothing else I can do. And getting to that point of like calm because you've done your best kind of thing. And I think that that helped, but it would have been, the most stressful time but I think that was also my biggest kind of achievement in terms of managing my stress and worries and so on I mean now now I do care about things a little bit more again which is good and bad but um yeah I need to get back to that uni state that super calm Josh and just going back to the band a little bit how do the other boys support you if you are struggling and have you found them to be like a really supportive mechanism and, or management tool themselves during this journey 100% so um we actually have and I think Charlie's probably going to cover this a bit as well with um question later, but we've got a little chat group that we have that um, we, we use to kind of 
in the before times, we would organize like drinks in London and stuff where we would chat about life. And we'd always, you know, if we had bad days, Charlie and Arthur would drop a, like a, boys, we need a, a pretty awful chat. The chat was called was the Pretty Awful Records chat because that was like our our label name that we wanted to have so we'd always be like oh we need we need a chat and then we'd go and we'd, we'd come with our life subjects and we'd speak about them and it'd be a nice way of kind of sharing that with each other and helping each other out and yeah all of us I think are very supportive of each other in the band. Going through what you have Josh and the achievements that you've got to up to this point in your life how have all these experiences shaped you into the Josh speaking to me now? So this is going to sound really cheesy but I think in a weird way all my like worries and my thoughts and my overthinking that I have, it does help me. And like, sometimes obviously I won't appreciate them when I'm like thinking about something for a while and like spiraling, but sometimes it does help a lot of my job. And I guess any job is organization and preparation and where, you know, for me, I need to like manage expectations of people and my mind, because of the way that I think sometimes it will like jump to these worst case scenarios, but I can kind of prepare for them mentally in my head of if that thing was to happen So I'm in this like, you know, as I was saying before, this like constant moderate state of worry where I'm like thinking about all the different scenarios that could occur. But if they do happen, I'm prepared for that eventuality because I kind of have thought about it already in my head. And then that jump in in worry as well is like less because I've not gone from everything's going to be fine to, oh no, like it's one day before the deadline and, you know, something bad's happened. It's helped me a bit. And I think without like my worries, I would be a completely different person. I should probably rebrand my worries in my head in that positive spin. (laughs) I'm going to come to you now, Charlie. So Josh, you can relax. Same question as Josh. So why don't you start by talking me through your early life, upbringing, teenagers and the Charlie we meet here. Yeah, so quite similar to Josh, which is funny because we always joke about we share a last name. We're both Wilsons. So there's obviously a bit of a running joke that because we we were so similar growing up and we share a lot of feelings and things like that, that we are basically related somewhere up the line. I was quite a, a worrisome child, to kind of put it that way. I, I'm the eldest child. I do have a sister, younger sister. But because I was my parents first, I think that probably they were a bit more protective, if you like, of me. I was born prematurely as well. So they were that kind of, it didn't obviously hit me until later, but they obviously must have been quite scared. They must have been quite worried. I was the kid in my friendship group with strict parents, which sounds weird to say looking back now, because they definitely weren't in comparison to how I would parent a hypothetical child it seemed quite normal but at the time as a kid you're like oh my mum doesn't let me do anything I can't stay out late I can't go and see my friends but I definitely had this kind of out of sight out of mind way of looking at things when I was younger so coming through primary school and things like that I was definitely more of a if I sit in my room and play video games and watch tv I don't think about any of the stresses of life which I think at that point I didn't really fully understand because I was quite young but my parents were also happy for me to kind of do whatever, but they they still, whatever that, whatever was, they wanted to push me towards that as much as they could. So as much as I didn't get funneled into doing anything that I didn't want to do, it was still quite full on, if you like. When it comes to your journey, Charlie, it was sixth form where you first began to experience mental health difficulties. If you could just tell me a bit about this period of your life and how you felt during that time. So sixth form was kind of my first brush with the real world. So responsibilities and managing my own time and and being a young adult, I guess. I definitely work better with structure, I think. And sixth form kind of almost strips that away almost overnight. You kind of just get let to, you know, these are your subjects. 
these are when the exams are, this is when your coursework's due in, crack on. You don't even have to be here if you don't want, as long as you get the work done. And to, to go from having to raise my hand to go to the toilet to, okay, you can do whatever you want to do now. For that to happen so quickly, that was kind of at odds with how I worked best. And it was kind of everything I knew about the structure of school kind of dropped away. And so I fell into a, a bit of a, a spiral with that in terms of it's only going to get not worse, but it's only going to get more like this because this uni full-time job, it's all like this. And if I'm already struggling now in my head, I was thinking if I'm struggling at this point, it's only going to get worse. So that kind of fueled it a little bit. And in conjunction with that, I also managed somehow in June to contract pneumonia and I was actually hospitalized for a little bit. And this was just as the AS exams were starting. So I missed a couple of them. And I basically got offered, I got sat down once I was all out and I was healthy, I got, I sat down with the head of year and I got offered to either reset the exams the next year. So this, so not bum around, but sit in lessons until September. And then in the new year, I just reset the whole first year of sixth form, or I could do both the AS and A2 exams at the end of both years, similar to how it, it, it used to be. And looking back like an idiot, I chose to stay with my friends and do all the exams in one fat lump at the end, which went about as well as you would imagine it would. Maybe it was the wrong choice, but I am where I am now because of it. So I don't necessarily think that it was something that I would change or that I regret, but it definitely didn't really contribute to how my mental health was at the time. Before we talk about that pneumonia, actually, I'm obviously a northeast Londoner. We're all Northeast Londoners. We all grew up in the same sort of similar schools. Our school networks were probably pretty close. We all probably knew each other to some degree, if you do the theory of six. Do you think that be-all and end-all university exam cycle we were all driven towards contributed to your mental health difficulties in a negative way? Or were you able to manage that part as best as you could? I think I definitely tried, but it definitely was a very this is what you need to do kind of thing whether or not you even thought it was something that you wanted to do my year was the last year before the price went up to nine grand a year so for my year they really really pushed the right if you even if almost to the point where if you, even if you didn't want to go you had to at least apply you had to at least do the legwork and I, I remember not even really being sure whether I wanted to go to university or not but still being not necessarily forced but there was time scheduled for me to sit down and fill out UCAS and do my personal statement. There were blocks of time in my schedule that I had to do those things. So due to the illness, obviously, I didn't do fantastically in exams. I didn't get into the ones I wanted to and the ones that I was kind of half and half on. I didn't know if I wanted to go down that route, even though I would have got in possibly. And at this point, I kind of had already decided that I wanted to get into tech and the technology industry. So I kind of felt through the bit of research that I had done, that experience was kind of more valuable than a uni degree. Obviously, certain places you would need a degree to even get your foot in the door. But in my mind, I felt that somebody with a degree, I would rather have me have hired somebody who would have had more experience rather than a degree. So I kind of decided, right, I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to put myself into debt. I'm going to shift and just try and find a job doing this and work my way up. I want to talk about that pneumonia you had as well, because when you contracted it, what was your mental state like? Was it a case of how the hell has this happened to me? Kind of ruminating about how you're going to do the exams. Were you self-aware that, okay, this has happened. I've just got to get on with it. What was your mental state like? So kind of growing up, I was always quite a bit of a sickly child I suppose I, I guess probably maybe due to me being prematurely born my immune system wasn't fantastic so I'd always get a cold every year I'd always get a couple you know if there was chicken pox 
I would be the first kid to get it. I was aware that I probably would get ill on a semi-regular basis. So I'd come to terms with that. But this was definitely the first time that I had to stay overnight in a hospital. And it was at the most stressful period of my life that I'd yet experienced and all of it leading up to, yeah. So I, I think really in terms of being mentally on top of it, I think it did throw me for a bit of a loop. And I, I remember sitting there that first night because obviously my parents didn't stay there overnight with me. I was just some eight, <laughs> 17-year-old kid in a hospital bed. And I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever experienced. This is horrible. This is the worst time this could have happened. I was already stressed before this. I'm just kind of coming out of my shell in sixth form and meeting new friends and discovering girls and other things that I like doing. And it all kind of hit at that one time. And to a certain extent, I almost became just quite numb to it. It was almost so much to take in at one time that I, similar to how Josh mentioned earlier, there was an element of, right, there's nothing I can do about it. This is just what's happened. I'm just going to get through this first thing. I'm going to get myself better and then I'm going to tackle all what I need to do after this. So I think it was a, as it was happening, it kind of ebbed and flowed between feeling completely overwhelmed and being quite calm about it, which is quite strange. But I definitely think it was a bit of both. And looking back, what do you think got you through that period, do you think? I think surrounding myself with people that felt the same as me and had similar interests was quite important. I mean, it's I, I would always maintain that your friends at school, they're the friends that you pick that are the most aligned to you as a core person. Because when you're younger, granted, when you become a teenager, there's a bit of a liking stuff because it's cool and not because you necessarily like it kind of undertone. But for all intents and purposes, you pick people. You're not in an office. You, you're not aware of office politics or anything like that. You're not aware of relationships that are kind of forced you basically see someone and you go, right, you like the same thing as me. You're into the same thing. Let's be friends. And I'm still friends with, there's a core group of people that I met at school who I'm still friends with to this day and, and Josh included. There's just a core group of people that you meet when you are your most you and then you take those forward. And I think surrounding yourself with people like that and with people that align themselves with you is so important because it's a great support group where people that you can talk to about anything really. And for you, Charlie, what tools or techniques do you use to manage your mental health now as opposed to back then when you might not have had any or even been self-aware that you were struggling? Yeah, I think I'm mostly to a state now where I've conquered is the wrong word because I feel like it's always there. But I'm mostly over the same things that I was struggling with back then. There are a few things that still linger, but I've mostly learned to deal with them through experience. So it's not obviously something by definition I could have had when I was younger, things like imposter syndrome and feeling like, oh, what I'm making isn't good enough, or they're going to find out that I'm, I don't really know what I'm doing and things like that. I think the best way to deal with that that I've found is to look back at past successes or part things that you've done in the past that people other than yourself or other than just your friends and family have looked at and gone, no, that was really good. And, and I do keep and I urge everyone to do this as well, if you feel the same, to keep a folder. I have a, an email folder at work with any feedback from any projects that I've done, anything that's been signed off, any email that comes back that is a, wow, great, thank you so much, looks great, looks fantastic, I showed so-and-so and they said it was brilliant. Even though those are kind of nothing emails, I like to keep those and store them up because then it's a place whenever I'm feeling like that, I can go back and look at that and go, no, this I did this thing and this was the result. And so, yeah, I'm just overthinking it, really. And knowing what you do now, Charlie, what do you think you'd say to that 16 or 17 year old you that might have been struggling that you could say to help him? It sounds cliche to say, but it'll pass. Time will sort everything out. And the things, especially when you're in school, the things that you think are really huge 
I don't think really are that big or that important in the long run. Not going to university as well is not the be all and end all. It's more, I would say it's more important to socially develop at school. I know that's kind of at odds with the reason you go to school. But when I think about the two things that I got out of school that were my friends and people that I know and love and my grades, I only really use one of those. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm doing a job now that I love in the area that I wanted to be in and I didn't even have to show my GCC or A-level results to get into there. Whereas the people that I met at school, I speak to them every day and we talk all the time and that's fantastic. So I think it is definitely time will heal everything. Don't overthink everything. It's okay to not hit every beat at the same time that everyone else is hitting it. And that's uh, that's all I would I would say to my younger self really is just don't overthink everything. <laughs> Our final topic of conversation, boys, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, and you can include circumstances or exclude them at time of recording, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, guys? Charlie, why don't you go first? I think I'm actually in a, in a pretty good position, which I know is quite at odds with the situation we currently find ourselves in 2020. It's kind of been a bit of a weird one. This summer, I spent a lot of time during lockdown out with friends on my bike, distanced, obviously, but out with a select few people. And it was quite nice because I never really did that when I was younger, you know, riding bikes through the forest and things like that. A lot of my friends did that, but I never really had that. And I didn't necessarily feel like it was missing from like my childhood, but it was very nice to just have a period of no responsibilities again, almost, which was kind of weird because I didn't think I needed it, but it really clarified that I valued kind of experiences over and above anything else. And it was just a really nice palate cleanser for everything bad that was going on. So I think that that definitely helped me and, and it's done wonders for my self-esteem as well. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. And you, Josh, how have you been coping? Yeah, I think generally okay. I've got there's a couple of like stressful life thing life admin y things on at the moment, but the work life balance that I've had from working from home has been really good actually. I think not going on the central line every morning is fantastic for everyone's mental health. Like it's soul crushing to be so it's soul crushing and people crushing to be on the central line. And it's nice to just wake up in the morning get a bit of an extra lie-in, go downstairs, have my breakfast, and then go out to the shed and just go through the day completely at home. And when I finish work, I can have more time as well to do stuff in the evenings. So I think that's really helped. It's it's actually been, been quite lucky in that regard that I've been able to continue working at home. I know that's not always the case for everyone, which is scary, but I think, I think, I'm, I think I'm okay at the moment. Charlie, why don't you talk to me about the first time you ever had a conversation with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? What impact did it have? And looking back, did it feel like an insignificant thing or was it quite a seminal moment? It was probably in and around the same time during sixth form when I started feeling negative feelings that didn't go away quickly because I I'd obviously you feel sadness as an emotion, but usually you sleep on it or the thing that you're sad about you forget about it and then you're back to normal. But yeah, when I became aware of this kind of undercurrent of, oh, I'm not actually even sad about anything in particular. There's just this level of sadness. And I think it was probably just with my parents initially, just about that. It was almost so far removed for me that I wasn't even aware of the stigma behind talking about your mental health, let alone the feelings themselves. So I, I, I was happy to kind of talk with my parents about it. And I've always been quite open with my feelings about my parents. And yeah, I think it was probably around then 
that I would describe to them what I was feeling. And at the time, as you say, I didn't think of it really as a, as a seminal moment. I didn't think like this is the first time I'm really pouring my heart out about these feelings because I don't think I've, I didn't really appreciate what that feeling was at the time. It was more of a, I'm just feeling this type of way this week. I might talk to my parents about it, but it, as you say, it's only looking back that that's kind of, you can pinpoint that as a bit of a root of the problems that you would face later on in life. And for you, Josh, what was it like for you? Yeah, I think it's probably kind of the same. I, I When I was young, I mean, I'd always kind of express that to my parents and be like, oh, I'm worried about this thing and oh, I'm worried about that. And it was almost more of a casual thing to just say, you know, I'm, I'm worried about that and have that discussion, which is good because it's good to have that frame the conversation in that way as quite, a, you know, a casual thing because, you know, we should be speaking about it. So it's probably, yeah, family and then also Arthur, because I've known Arthur for so long, I'd, I'd speak to him quite a lot about it because he is basically like a brother because I've known him for that literally like my entire life. So I think it was having that kind of casual perspective to the conversation helped and having it as a constant thing was good for me. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So this could be things people might say, sounds, sensations, social environments. Josh, do you want to go first? Yeah, so I think personally, I think anything that I'm not in control of the outcome in terms of like, so for example, going back to like, uh, you know, work and stuff having a deadline and not being able to get everything back on time will be really stressful because there's nothing I can do about it. There's like the worry of not being able to do anything about it, but there's almost the peace of not being able to do anything about it because there's nothing more you can do. You've done everything you can and you should frame it and have that perspective. And going back to uni, I think I had that perspective of like, there's nothing else I can do. I've done everything I can. There's no need for me to think about it anymore. So I think that's simultaneously like the good and bad side of it. And that's probably what does trigger me of like that not being in control but I should reframe it and think about it in the more positive way and then also I think anything that changes people's like view of myself as well like I, I get quite worried about sending emails at work for example <laughs> you know like I want to make it perfect and I go through and I have all these like crazy little checks <laughs> that I do on my emails and like I read it I like yeah I, I spend a lot of time reading emails and checking them and I think that's probably another thing that gets me quite anxious and worried so yeah anything if I can't change the outcome of it though that's what I should be focusing on and it's like I've done everything I can that should be what makes the worry less strong 100% agree and I have the same thing when it comes to checking emails especially if I send out a press release or something and I have to make sure every detail is right and then if it's one spelling error on the press release that goes out that is the worst thing ever because you can't unsend it that you can't unsend it no, it's it's terrifying. I, I yeah, I I don't want to think about the amount of time I spend checking my emails. It's 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 a lot of time. And for you, Charlie, what are some of the triggers that you can talk to me about, or have you not figured all of them out yet? There's probably a few things that I could work on pinpointing like the root cause of. But I think my main one is when pressure kind of mounts too much for me. My mind kind of goes blank, and I can't really think of almost anything in some cases like if if I'm if there's a deadline coming up and something happens with my computer or something uh, probably similar to what Josh had just mentioned about being out of control I think that compounds it as well but my mind will just go instead of almost begging my mind to come up with a solution and it's just completely blank and I can't think about anything whereas if I wasn't stressed at all I would be able to think rationally I don't know I guess that's some kind of biological self-defense thing there of of just no just don't don't think about anything and we'll be fine it's all out of sight out of mind which is a, obviously on brand for me because I've, I've spoken about that before but I think in terms of dealing with that it helps as well to make a lot of notes and to know kind of roughly what your workflows are for certain things 
beforehand I think it's another thing that will just gradually get better over time I think I I feel a lot of and even just to talk about mental health in general I feel like a lot of it is muscle memory I feel like if you keep doing something or you repeat behaviors that you would otherwise be stressful to you they do gradually become less stressful like I used to be petrified of talking to someone on the phone when I was younger kind of 14 15 ish I just wouldn't the phone at home would just ring off and I would just sit there I just wouldn't answer it I didn't I don't know who it is I don't know what they're going to ask me I don't have the script of what they're going to say and it was only when I got into a job where I kind of had to do that every day that now I don't even think anything of it it's completely gone and it's interesting to kind of see how all that that took to get over that is just to keep facing it in a little bit each and every day and then gradually it gets over and so to have that in my mind even if I still confront something that I'm not really 100% on knowing how I'm going to get over it to know that it's possible to train yourself to get over more or less everything in that kind of way is is quite hopeful and I, I do keep that in the back of my head and it does alleviate the stress a little bit anxiety is very annoying in, in that it can make you anxious about doing something you've done a hundred times before hundred mm, percent toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast chaps and it's one we try and break down a lot hopefully in a few more years toxic masculinity will become a thing of the past or in a very small minority what would you define as toxic masculinity and what examples of it have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners josh why don't you go first I guess at a very high level, I, I define it as the, you know, the harmful stereotypes that affect men and society in general. Uh, and that obviously encapsulates like tons of things. I don't think I've experienced it all that much, but I guess the big one for me is, you know, that harmful expectation that, you know, men are stoic and repress emotions. And maybe, you know, subconsciously that played a part in why I find it harder or found it harder to speak about my emotions that we spoke about earlier. It's probably not the whole reason, but it's definitely played into that. It's probably the one that I've come closest to and that I needed to break down. And what about you, Charlie? Yeah, um, well, most of my friends I met through a a shared love of skateboarding. And that's definitely a very male-dominated industry. And so that was my first exposure to the what I would consider to be toxic masculinity. That is the, you know, be tough, don't cry, don't show emotion as a guy. Uh, And especially growing up around school, it was definitely, if you were showing any they were framed as negative emotions. If you showed any kind of sadness or you showed that you were upset or anything like that, it was almost just a weakness. You would get kind of pounced on by certain people. So I feel like that was kind of my first exposure to it. But then I feel like skateboarding as an industry as well, just as an aside, is gradually getting better. And I think as we all move into the future, I feel like it is being spoken about more. It's obviously a long way off, but I think it's good that we're at least having these conversations about not only the fact that it exists, but what steps we can take to minimise it and hopefully get rid of it in the future. Positive masculinity is also something I try and talk a lot about on this podcast, boys. And some guests have described it as self-awareness. Some guests have described it as being empathetic. Some guests have described it as being self-confident. What would you describe it as if you could put a definition on it? So I think that it probably would be anything kind of at odds with toxic masculinity, really, as you as you mentioned about being self-aware of the concepts of toxicity with being a man. And, you know, in terms of when you see somebody who obviously isn't doing great, but feels like they have to put on a front, having that conversation with them and letting them know that it's okay. Because I think a lot of my friends have been through similar things of growing up in certain environments where they hadn't developed the tools to comfortably talk about their mental health and talk about how they feel, you know, not because they're a man, but because men stereotypically aren't supposed to show emotion, if you like, they found it difficult to talk about things like that. So I think if you are, I guess, positive masculinity would be putting yourself in a position of help 
to other people who would be suffering from the effects of, of toxic masculinity. And just as a final question, boys, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? It's to that normalisation point. I think everyone, you know, constantly speaking about mental health, stuff like this, you know, stuff like like Vent and talking about it in conversation and through music, bringing it to the forefront of of conversation by doing that it kind of becomes less scary i think and everyone would then be in an environment where they're talking about their mental health and it becomes a a comfort i think if we have that that makes it so much better and it makes everyone feel safer in opening up if it's normalized and what do you think we have to do charlie yeah i think basically exactly what josh said i think i think we have to create this environment we have to basically normalize talking about it i think and I, i feel like we are definitely getting there but there is there's plenty of work still to be done um, in terms of just normalizing men being able to talk about their feelings, because I think there is still that hangover from even in my lifetime, I've seen a change. So I have no doubt that that we will eventually get there. But I think there's a there's still a lot of people that are clinging on to this idea that if they let their feelings out, they're not going to be, quote, a real man. And I think that is the main bit that's quite harmful. So I think, yeah, as, as Josh mentioned, just creating a safe space for men to just express their feelings and know that there won't be any repercussions, really. I think that would be the best bet. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Mic. I want to say a big thank you to Josh and Charlie from See You at Home for being my special guests on this episode and for letting me go behind the mic with them. I'll put some links to where you can follow See You at Home on social media and stream their music in the show notes. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic. And remember, it's always okay to vent. (laughs)